Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet you want a look that is timeless. And you also want a custom experience, creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly, and they're also easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. And by the way, their covers are both removable and washable. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofa and sectionals made for outdoor living. Cozy now has expanded from just an online market to a first-person space in Toronto, or you can go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com, C-O-Z-E-Y.com, to start customizing your furniture now. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show.
This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, Robin Russell Geyser tells us why she asked perfect strangers to lunch. And to her great surprise, almost everyone accepted her invitation. I was at a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and there was a man next to me ordering, and I asked him the question. And he began looking at me like I was a three-headed something or other. And then he, then it, something shifted in him, and he said, yeah, that would be okay. Also coming up, Alex Inews attempts to make a one-million-layer puff pastry, and we serve up Portuguese-style sweet potato rolls. But first is my interview with Vicki Benison, who travels across Italy in the search for pasta-making grandmas for her YouTube channel, Pasta Grannies. She recently published the Pasta Grannies cookbook. Vicki, welcome to Milk Street. Absolute pleasure to be talking to you. So a few years ago, uh, you realized that some of the classic cooking techniques, uh, culinary history of Italy was being lost, and you started to record Nonna, grannies, making pasta. Can I ask a question? What has changed uh, in Italy, in Italian homes, so that some of these techniques and recipes are not being continued? Um, the same changes that are happening everywhere else in the world. Um, women are going out to work and simply don't have the time. And there is a continuing reliance on uh, Nonna to make uh, Sunday lunch and that has served them well so far, but I think the change is coming is over the next 20 years, what Nonna will be making will be quite different to up to, up to now. Uh, so I thought, let's capture it while it's still there. And that's why I picked up the camera. Well, maybe in 50 years, American grandmothers will be making handmade pasta and, and then Italian grandmothers <laughs> will, will be heating up TV dinners. Yes, I mean, that would be fun, wouldn't it? That's that's one of the reasons for actually having the YouTube channel is just to inspire people. I'm not expecting people to start making pasta every day in the way that women have been doing, but perhaps to find enjoyment in making pasta, you know, a couple of times a month or once or twice a year. How do you go about filming this? Well, I start by thinking about where do I want to go in Italy um, and what pastas have I not filmed yet. So I'm always on the lookout for mentions of obscure pastas, as well as the obvious ones, of course, because sometimes I forget that I haven't done fettuccine, for example. <laughs> so um, we decide that we want to go to Liguria, and I'm working with a woman called Livia Di Giovanni, and she's my granny finder. And... Livia and I work out who we think would be good to contact. So that's often the organisers of food festivals, um, the local council, and also word of mouth. Um, one of the things we often do is, you know, we find on a train or a hotel receptionist and we say, do you have a grandmother? <laughs> so, <laughs> well, that, that's you know, an obvious We're always way. asking. <laughs> and, and so you film you film one segment a day or two segments a day? or We film two to three grannies a day. And there's Livia who comes with me. And then I have a cameraman, Andrea, who's also Italian. And he's extremely good at eating pasta, um, <laughs> which is important <laughs> because the grandmothers are making the pasta for us, not for YouTube, not for the audience, you know, for us. And so we have pasta three or four times a day. <laughs> 
Yeah, you're going to have a lot of listeners really feeling terrible about your your job description. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the shapes. The the video I just couldn't stop watching, and I don't remember the name of this pasta, but it was very very thin stretched pasta over a straw, not a basket, oh. but a, but a circle. <laughs> and I just was going like I could not imagine how this woman was doing this. It was could you just describe it because it was. You know, I, I couldn't take my eyes off it. <laughs> Isn't that a mad pasta? It's called Sufilindeo, um, and you only find it uh, from a town in Sardinia called Nuoro. It's associated with a religious festival, and so you don't eat it normally. I mean, it's it's quite one of those mad things. Is you go to all that effort, you you stretch the dough a bit like Chinese noodles the wheat noodles that you get sometimes and um, having got all your strands you then sort of lay them over um, this this special flat basket disc it's it's quite large yes it is these basket discs can be about 70 centimeters wide so you're stretching these uh, these pasta strands over that disc and you layer it three times in different directions and you end up with these sort of like wool strands of wool and and then you break it up and you dissolve it into mutton stock, <laughs> which, you know, is crackers because you, you, I right. sort of feel that it should be sort of left as works of art because it's so extraordinary. Well, you know, it, it's when you watch someone cook, once in a while you go, there's not enough time left for me to ever figure out how to do this because <laughs> the, you, you have to do that for a lot of years to get that right. She made it look easy, but it wasn't. No, it wasn't. What are some of the other shapes that you found that were just things you didn't know about that were pretty amazing? Yes, I mean, there are so many. I mean, uh, one of the first ones I came across that was really obscure is something called Pifazak which is a kind of dumpling-type pasta from north of Lake Izio, so it's practically into um, Switzerland. And you, you, it actually means baby's nappies. <laughs> oh, charming. That's a, that's a great marketing. <laughs> I know. Terrific. That's probably why it isn't very yeah. popular. <laughs> and so you kind of, it's, the, it's like swaddling clothes. It's the way that you fold them, like you, you when you're wrapping old-fashioned baby's nappies over a child. And uh, that served up with lashings of butter. So that was one that was fun. And and uh, the other one I liked from that same area was uh, La Lumichele della Duchessa, which is the Duchess's snails. And this was originally given to noble women after having had a baby. Yeah, I think you said that uh, it has cinnamon in it. Is, is that yes. very unusual or is cinnamon not that unusual in pasta? The cinnamon would have been hugely expensive. Now, of course, it's ubiquitous, but um, it was believed that everything that went into this plate of, of soup, pasta and broth, was maximized to um, helping women recover from the ordeal of giving birth. So so you, you've interviewed 200 grandmothers, Nana. What... What surprises you? One of the things I've really appreciated from interviewing over 200 women is the advice for growing old, which is to stay really active. All these women have been on their feet all their lives. No one ever sits down and kind of watches television. They're always busy, busy, busy. Um, And I think the other theme that comes through is the frugality of these women. We've forgotten that about how to use every last little piece of dough or um, meat, and nothing goes to waste. It's all really precious. 
is there a, a grandmother you particularly remember uh, for whatever reason you'd want to share with us? I think one of the things that comes through for me, and it's not necessarily a granny, is family life and their willingness to have a party at a drop of a hat. Whenever we go there, it's a celebration and we end up being surrounded by friends and family, um, toasting the grandmother and what she's made. And I think that's fantastic. And I think in terms of answering your question about particular grannies, um, I have to say that Letizia, who's 100 years old and still making pasta, (laughs) is my current favorite. But I, I find it very difficult to just say one. I think I love them all. (laughs) Well, may you and I both be 100 years old someday and still making pasta, right? Exactly. Vicki, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure having you on uh, Milkshake. Thank you. That was Vicki Benison. Her new book is Pasta Grannies, Secrets to Italy's Best Home Cooks. Right now, my co-host Sarah Molt and I will be answering a few of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, glad to see you. Thank you, Chris. So let's open up the phone lines. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Lynn Powers. Hi, Lynn. Where are you calling from? Vermont. Okay, that's Chris territory. Yeah. At any rate, how can we help you today? Well, I've had some problems getting jam to set. I make freezer jam, and the last batch I made, I split the peaches in half and had one batch that set fine, and the other batch did not. There were slight differences between the two. One was half cinnamon, half peach, and half mango, The other batch called for vanilla bean, but I used vanilla extract, and that's the batch that did not set. It's got to be because there was too much liquid, there was alcohol in the vanilla extract. So I thought I would try, I got some more peaches a little while later, and I thought I would get some vanilla beans. So I went to the grocery store to get some, and I had sticker shock. And I thought, no, I really want to figure it out, so I went ahead and bought them. I made another batch, and oh my good heavens, it, it was fabulous. The flavor's really good, and it set fine. How much of the vanilla extract was called for in the recipe? Well, the recipe called for vanilla, and I just substituted, thinking that I could right. get away with it. Probably like somewhere between a teaspoon and a tablespoon. You do a lot of boiling with jam, so you're going to boil 80%, 90% of that alcohol off? I don't think it was the vanilla. I just don't think it, it was the vanilla. I have a lot of variance between batches and getting just the right temperature and this and that and the other thing. Let's also focus on the fact that you made a separate batch when you used the actual vanilla beans. The peaches were different peaches and maybe at a different ripeness and maybe a different amount of liquid. Are you using pectin to thicken? Sure gel? Yeah. 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 There are two kinds. There's the regular box and there's the pink box. One is low sugar. If you're making a lower sugar fruit jam... You need to use the low-sugar pectin. Well, one of them was you spoon it out. It says freezer pectin. So did you use different pectin for different batches? Yeah, I just Uh grabbed whatever I had on the shelf. The batch that didn't work had a different pectin than the one that did work? Um, The first two batches had the same kind of pectin, the pectin in the box. Right. 
And then the third batch had the pectin from just, you spoon it out, it's from a jar. I would use the pectin used in the second batch and try that with the liquid vanilla extract and see what happens. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Chris, have you worked with, there's a company that makes the really designer vanilla extract. It begins with an M. Massey. Massey, yeah. At any rate, they make a vanilla bean paste. That's a good idea. I'm not saying it's not expensive, but it lasts a lot longer. It's a lot more affordable than vanilla beans. And it's a very nice product. Yeah. That's an excellent idea. Because it does make a difference. Anyway, try the last batch with that pectin and see what happens. Yeah. Thanks for calling. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, I'm Brendan from Fresno, California. How are you? Doing well, and you? Pretty good. I think we're both doing We're well. very good, yeah. yes. Okay. How can we help you? I was just wondering about the nutritional content or readings on products. For example, like a can of chicken. It's a, the sodium content is huge. It's like 1,200 milligrams or something for one can of chicken. Woo! So does that change once you drain away all the packing liquid? And the same thing with like like bacon. When you cook bacon, you know, does the calorie content change because you're you're draining the fat away and you're just eating the bacon? Well, I'm going to start with the bacon because that's easier. They mean cooked bacon because you know the fat's in there when it's raw, and then it's not in there when it's cooked. I do have a question, which is why would you look at the nutrition label on a big package of bacon? Because I mean, it is bacon. Well. I mean, when you're when you're monitoring nutrition, like you know, I'm, I'm an athlete, so I monitor my I nutrition. So I like to keep a close eye on that stuff. So. That's fair. Okay, I think Sarah's right, though. I think the leftover grease in the pan's not counted. And as for canned chicken, I mean, it certainly you drain it, but it's still going to be pretty high in sodium. Maybe you could rinse it. That's what I've been doing. I think it improves the flavor anyway. I was just generally curious to just labeling in general. I mean, that was just my example of the chicken, you know, but just. You know, does it consider, and even like garbanzo beans or kidney beans, like that kind of stuff. Because what if you pour it into a, a, a soup and you use the entire can, you know, or bacon, if you chop it into beans, I render the fat out and then I just add the beans in and pour the water on top and just cook it all together. And you leave the fat in there. Mm, it's delicious. Well, I'll tell you what, we don't know the answer. We will post it at our website, 177milkstreet.com. It's a question answer form. We'll check it out and we'll post it in a couple of days. Yeah. All right. Well, I stumped you. You did. <laughs> you did. Yeah, you get. <laughs> what do you get? <laughs> it feels great. He says. Yeah. What does he get? You start giving out prizes. We, we, people got to win money if they stump us. Yeah. But that's that was a good one. We'll yeah. post it on the website. Yes. Okay. Thanks, Brandon. Brandon. Thanks. Okay, cool. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a question, give us a call at eight five five four two six nine eight four three. That's eight five five four two six nine eight four three. Or email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Kaylee. Kaylee, where are you calling from? Gray, Maine. How can we help you today? I have a question about pancakes. I like to make them in batches, but then when I store them and reheat them, they taste awful. Like they don't taste like anything. Are you storing them in the refrigerator or freezing them? I've tried both, but the freezer is usually worse. But I would ideally like to put them in the freezer. How do you reheat them then? Right now, just in the microwave. I think you could freeze them as long as they're well-wrapped. Could we stop for just a second? Yeah. You're doing this because you don't want to... Because my kids love pancakes. (laughs) And you (laughs) don't want to make a new batch every time. And I don't want to make them every day. For breakfast, yeah. Well, there's a cheat, you know, which is you can buy a pancake mix where you add a little 
like an egg and milk, and some of those actually are pretty good. So if you wanted not to go through the whole thing, that would be a better solution in terms of flavor and texture than reheating something that's been frozen or refrigerated. So I know that's a terrible cheat, but that's the one time where I think I give you my <laughs> my <laughs> imprimatur to go out and buy something. If I have leftover pancakes, how can I make them taste good? Okay, well, that's the different question. I would say put them in the freezer, and then I would reheat them in the oven on parchment and put some foil over it so that they don't dry out. Or at least, you know, bake them like okay. at 350. Okay, now we're going to have a food fight. No, and then uncover them no, no, after no, you've heated look, them. Look, the point is, I know what this is like. You have four minutes to get breakfast on the table. They got to go to school. You got to go to work. To heat an oven to 350 takes 15 minutes. You do it first thing when you go it, get it, up. It's Make the coffee. It's, it's less work to make pancakes. No. I would say our experience at Milk Street is popping them in a toaster is the best, but I just think it's never going to be even close to freshly made. It's going to be 50% worse. But now maybe that's fine. They're kids. Okay. They don't mind. Oh, Lord. I don't think a microwave is no, the best way to go. I think we can agree on that. I say oven and brush the sheet pan with butter and then put them in oh. the sheet pan. Maybe brush a little butter on top. Oh, Ooh, Lord. yum. Now we're Lord. talking. <laughs> Respect Chris is the a pancake. pancake aficionado. I make pancakes every Saturday morning. I know. A freshly made pancake is a work of art. Kaylee. Do what you want with all do this Do it from info. a mix, okay. but do it fresh. All right. Thanks all right. for calling. Take care. All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're talking with Robin Russell Geyser about her memoir, Open for Lunch, which details her life of sharing meals with complete strangers. That's coming up in just a moment. This is Christopher Kimball. You know, over the last decade, Las Vegas has become one of the most unique culinary destinations in the world, and not just on the Strip. It's a city with culinary innovation everywhere you look. Here's one chef's story sponsored by Las Vegas. Hi, I'm Adrian Garcia. I'm the executive chef over at Main Street Provisions. So Main Street, we do new American cuisine with uh, emphasis on steaks and chops. It's an open kitchen, so you always see me at the past making sure all the food that goes out, we put a lot of love into it. Personally, I've always loved seafood, and our seasonal fish dish right now is uh, steelhead trout. We actually get whole fillets and uh, we air dry them, so it's nice and crispy. Uh, we do confit marble potatoes, braised fennel, and then we actually make a seafood broth with shrimp, clams, lobster, tomatoes, ajillo paste, which is a chili paste from Peru. You can eat that broth with anything. The chefs here can be very innovative because Vegas is a destination. You get people from all around the world, so you can open up any type of cuisine and you'll have an audience here. People are always seeking new and new exciting um, things to eat. So this is a great spot for chefs to just uh, create. And you don't have to go to the strip to find a five-star meal anymore. You can just uh, be on the outskirts and find a restaurant there that, you know, that could be a Michelin-star restaurant like Maestri Provisions. It's off the strip, but I still serve one of the best steaks in Las Vegas. You know, put my name on that. <laughs> 
From restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs to locally owned eateries, experience an incredible dining scene like nowhere else, only in Las Vegas. To learn more, go to visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Again, that's visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. This is Most Jay Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Robin Russell Geyser, a writer and certified music therapist practitioner based in Asheville, North Carolina. Robin, uh, welcome to Milk Street. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Uh, I loved your book, Open for Lunch. Why don't you just give us the basic concept of the book? You invite people to lunch at the last minute, standing in line at a casual restaurant of some kind? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, About 16 years ago, there was someone in front of me, and something moved me to, to say to her, you know, would you like to eat lunch with me? And she, of course, looked at me rather funny, and then she said, oh, okay. And the stories that I have learned from perfect strangers over the lunch table have really moved me. And so the, the book, besides the stories of the um, lunch people, then turns out to my story because they teach me so much in their stories that tell my story. Well, I was going to ask about that because uh, as I was reading your book recently, I started adding up all the things that have happened to you. Yes. And it's quite, I mean, you, I don't mind bringing it up because you wrote it down in the book. Uh, but young, I'll just list them off. Young widowhood, cancer before 40, panic disorder, prescription drug addiction, surgical errors, two serious car accidents. It's quite a list. And the obvious connection is you're trying to get some answers and maybe you get some of them through people at lunch. Absolutely. Sometimes, uh, you know, life was pretty rough and uh, I don't appear to be anyone who looks like that, but the interior is is deep and uh, has needed forgiveness, health, wellness, Uh, looking for all of that in my life. And so I would come away from these stories that that affected me deeply. And then the next thing you know, my own story came alive as well. And in this particular book, I have really taken the dive. Is the book also about forgiving yourself for things you feel guilty about or your situation in life? Absolutely, especially with my mother. Um, She and I, I used the word tangled, had a tangled relationship. And, you know, she and my father married as soon as he came back from World War II. They hardly knew each other. They had me while my dad was going to uh, UB for his engineering degree and my mother was was uh, had already gotten her her degree, and she was a uh, singer and pianist, and that was her calling. Well, that ended, you know, when she started having children, and she didn't ever really, I think, live the life that she would have liked to live. I think about the times when I was younger, and she would be a soloist singing. Let's say uh, she would be a a paid soloist singing something for the Messiah. 
And of course, I was bored as all get out because I was nine years old and I thought, oh, I just can't wait. But now that I've come to realize that that was a passion she had, I understand um, and can forgive her for the way she was as a mother because she was never happy. And I think there was also some depression. But, you know, in those days, so what? You know, you just keep on going. You know, both of us grew up in a generation where nobody would stop by and go like, hey, how's life? How you doing? Enjoying everything? Oh, absolutely. And I realized, you know, that particular time in history, uh, what did you do? You got married and you had kids. And no one would have stopped and thought, well, do we do we really want to do this? You know, it, it was unheard of. So let's go back to your first lunch lady, lunch experience. I was Lois. Mm-hmm. You were up in uh, near Saratoga Springs in New York. So your description was lavender gray hair thinning, so her beige scalp peeked through, no hat or boots, dated glasses with yellow plastic frames, quilted maroon car coat, mint green polyester slacks. Her shoes were white tie-up sneakers. So here's someone from the outside, uh, you know, nondescript, uh, but why her? Why did you pick her? Something led me to uh, ask her for lunch. Maybe I was lonely that day. The store was not very crowded. You know, we were at Walmart, of all places, because that was the only game in town. It was, as it was, 16 miles away from where we lived in the Adirondacks. And she was in line. And and when I saw her face, when she turned around, I think there was something in her that looked distraught. And I think there must have been something that day that told me this woman was struggling. And as it turns out, that was absolutely true. And so it was just amazing because I just kind of sat back and let her talk. And when she left, not only, I think, did she feel better, but I did too. In your book, you quote Oliver Sacks, another author, a doctor, of course, uh, well-known. And he writes about people's inner lives and, quote, gaping wounds and gazed expressions. So I gather you agree with Dr. Sachs that people in their personal life um, have a lot of tragedy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just about everyone I have come encounter with is such a person. And then I ask the question, who among us doesn't have things right. that go around in our lives or drag us down or that we keep in secret One of the remarkable things I think a listener would immediately think about is you've known this person for an hour or two. How could and why would someone open up so much to you in such a short amount of time? I really still don't know the answer. I think I'm safe. I'm not a family member. I'm not a doctor. And people just open up to me. I can't explain why. Um, I guess I'm (laughs) non-threatening. 
Well, it's got to, you got to have a little bit more than that. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I think you're clearly somebody people enjoy talking to. Are, are there people who just manage to get through life with, without any of the trials and tribulations, or do we all have them? It's hard to say. I certainly want, would not want to make a, you know, a sweeping gesture, but I would say that there are some people who have more happen to them than others, and I think I'm one of them. And because of that, I think I'm very tuned in to others who go through stuff, and I can sense it. Yesterday, we visited a 94-year-old woman at a nursing home, and she began just pouring her heart out and, um, and telling us how she was lonely and that her family didn't visit her as often as she wanted to and all of that. And she's been a friend for years. And she said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to dump on you. And I said, I am so glad that you feel comfortable doing that and continue to do that. And then she said, I know you get it. And so it's really neat to be a person who, who hears that. You've been doing this a long time. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and one might think that nothing surprises you at this point. But have you, in the last year or two, been surprised by something that happened at a lunch? One thing I wanted to add, Krista, is that I have friends as a result of these lunches with whom I keep contact. I was at a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and I was ordering my lunch, and there was a man next to me ordering, and I asked him the question, and he began looking at me like I was a three-headed something or other. And then, he, then it, something shifted in him and he said, yeah, that would be okay. And he proceeded to tell the most amazing story. And the story stuck with me so much. So I asked him if I could use his story on my blog. And he said, yes. So he and I get together for lunch, and he he is now writing. And he said, you have changed my life. He said, you have no idea how much you asking me for lunch that day meant. If you're standing in line, a lunch line at a restaurant, your conclusion would be you just have no idea based on what people look like, what's going on inside, I assume. And, you know, I'll, t- I'll talk to anybody, um, and there will be somebody in line, and I'll just say, hey, you know, if you're by yourself, I am too. Y- you want to eat lunch together. Robin, uh, thank you so much for, for being on Milk Street. It's been a real honor. Well, it's been my pleasure as well, Chris. Thanks so much for contacting me. That was Robin Russell Geyser. Her memoir is called Open for Lunch. It's time to head into the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, Portuguese-style sweet potato rolls. Catherine, how are you? I'm great, Chris. One of our editors, Albert, lives in Spain, so he does a lot of European uh, trips for us. He was in Lisbon, Portugal. He ordered uh, a sandwich from a local cafe, and what was interesting was not the filling, it was the roll, and it turned out to be a sweet potato roll with a really interesting texture. So we brought it back to Milk Street, and what did we do with it? 
Well, Chris, these rolls are called bolo do caco, and they are so delicious. Like you said, they have a nice kind of delicate sweetness from that sweet potato. And then we get the crumb, which is kind of crispy and chewy at the same time, uh, by using a really interesting cooking method. So we start by probably boiling the sweet potatoes, right, as a basis for the dough? That's right, Chris. We boil the sweet potatoes, but we actually season the water they're boiled in with a little bit of honey and some salt and some butter. And that's because that water is going to be blended in with the sweet potatoes to make a fine mash that will then go into the dry ingredients. But it's really important you don't rush this step, Chris. You want to let the sweet potatoes cool because they will kill the yeast if you put screaming hot sweet potatoes. So is this more like pizza dough where there's one proof and there's not a rise? Is that how this works? That's right, Chris. There's just the one proof. So once you have your ingredients all mixed together, you shape the individual rounds. So you can imagine these are kind of like an English muffin. They're going to each make an individual sandwich. And then you cover it and let it rise for about 30 minutes. You want them to double in size. And these are baked in the oven or like a regular bread? Well, this is where it gets interesting. So traditionally, these are made totally on the stovetop on like a skillet or a griddle. We decided, because we wanted to cook them all at the same time, to brown them on the outside and then finish them in an oven. So this is a typical bread recipe in terms of time, was two or three hours, but it doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of actual active time, right? That's right. You need a few hours set aside, but it's not a lot of work. And I'm telling you, Chris, it is totally worth it. Um, usually you say that about the food administration. <laughs> that's good, guy. That's why you work here. You like it. <laughs> so Portuguese sweet potato rolls from Lisbon. Doesn't matter what you put inside of them because the rolls themselves are so good. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for Portuguese-style sweet potato rolls at 177milkstreet.com. This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, Alex I News tries to make a puff pastry with over one million layers. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I use my basement music room to record this show, and I've been looking for a leather office chair for ages now. The good news is that I just found one. It's called the Gervin Charm Tan Office Chair, which I found on a great furniture site called Article. Article offers a wide variety of designs from mid-century modern, coastal, and industrial to Scandi and Boho designs. Article also offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. You pick the delivery time, and they'll send you updates every step of the way. Plus, the prices are more than fair. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash MilkStreet, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash MilkStreet 
for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. This is Christopher Kimball. You know, if you want to taste the world, travel to Las Vegas. It's one of the most international food cities in the United States. Here's one Baker story sponsored by Las Vegas. My name is Kimberly McIntosh. I am the chef owner of Milkfish Bake Shop, and I am a 2024 James Beard semifinalist for Outstanding Pastry Chef and Baker. I would say that the definite fan favorite would be our carioca dessert. Carioca is a Filipino street food that's like a coconut mochi fritter tossed in a coconut milk glaze and then some caramelized coconut curds called latik. And then I also added a really amazing Philippine sea salt. It's one of those bites of food where you get a different flavor every time. I don't think people are necessarily expecting that with something that looks so simple. And it piques their interest to see what else we have to offer in terms of how we represent Filipino food in a different way. I think Las Vegas is one of the ultimate dining scenes in America. You know, you see a lot of chefs who are based out in New York, based out in California, and what do they want to do when they want to take it to the next level? You want to open a restaurant in Vegas. It's been really cool to see a lot of celebrity chefs come out here like Jose Andres, Mark Vetri, David Chang. But also having that in combination with the incredible local talent that is here in the restaurant scene. Like I've never been somewhere that has this really great African kitchen, but they also have this really authentic Thai restaurant. People see a lot of other businesses being able to shine and being able to succeed out here. And I feel like that's really motivated a lot of people to share their food as well, which has been really exciting to see. That was Kimberly McIntosh. From restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs to locally owned eateries, experience an incredible dining scene like nowhere else, only in Las Vegas. To learn more, go to visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Again, that's visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. 
Up next, Sarah Moult and I will solve a few more of your culinary mysteries. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is David Vogler from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hi, David. How can we help you today? My question is, uh, what does Zantham gum have to do with baking, or what effects does it have on dough? You know, it's interesting because xanthan gum you always saw as something listed in baked goods, but I never really focused on it until the gluten-free era came along because it's used a lot in gluten-free cooking. It provides elasticity and stickiness to doughs that don't have the gluten in them. Also, it has many uses. It can stabilize suspensions. It's added to ice cream to prevent crystals from forming. And the cool thing about it is is you don't have to heat it or chill it for it to thicken. You just combine it with liquid. Chris, do you want to add anything to that? Well, it's a sort of a thickener and a stabilizer outside of gluten-free baking, right? That's what it's some sauces or anything like that. But yeah, you see it. If you look at the back of those bags that gluten-free flours and, or mixes, it's one of those things along with, you know, cornstarch and other stuff, yeah. Does that answer your question, David? Yes, when you mentioned the elasticity. that uh, I bake biscuits. I started this some time back just to, as a bit of a hobby. And uh, my family, they sometimes the biscuits will come out a little dry and crumbly, and I was wondering if that would help with the elasticity and give it an elastic quality. No, no. For biscuits, do you remember your recipe, two cups of flour, and how much fat do you use? Uh, A quarter cup of uh, vegetable lard and uh, two tablespoons of butter. I use a pastry cutter, but sometimes I'll do it by hand. You're about right. I use seven tablespoons total. I have four butter and three of the lard, but you might up add an additional tablespoon that would help. Yeah, I was thinking it was the fat content Uh, that might be the problem. And then use buttermilk or regular milk or what? Uh, Well, I'll use buttermilk when I have it, and sometimes I'll uh, have heavy cream around. I'll put a splash of heavy cream in with the milk. Well, you sound like you're a biscuit pro. My guess would be that you're probably measuring the flour, not weighing it, correct? I have a two-cup sifter that my mom had when I was small. Uh Uh-huh. And I use that two-cup sifter, and I sift the flour. And what, is it a 425 oven for 12 minutes, something like that? Yeah, about that. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing everything right. I mean, the only reason they would be crumbly would be they didn't have enough fat, but I just add an extra tablespoon, or you're over-baking them. The flour can differ also, depending on the time of year. But you adjust the liquid to get the right feel of the dough, so you can roll it out and cut it. I don't think you need xanthan gum, I think. No, I don't either. Uh, I'd say just yeah. up the fat or up the up liquid. Up the fat and just make sure you don't over-bake it. That's yeah. All. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, and it's, definitely... It sounds like you're a pro. All right. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Bye-bye. Take care, David. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a ring anytime. The number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name's Suzanne. And where are you calling from? Bothell, Washington. Okay, and how can we help you? Well, I have a little bit of an esoteric question for you guys. We um, are pretty close to the Cascades, and there are a lot of lobster mushrooms around. And I'm not sure what else to do with them other than risotto. I was looking for some suggestions from you guys. Those are those reddish-orange ones? 
that are white inside? Yeah. That don't taste like lobsters? <laughs> no. <laughs> and they're fairly dense, too, once you cut them open, and they're large. I mean, I found them as big as, like, two and a half pounds. So it's a lot of mushroom. Wow, no wonder you're at a loss as to what to do with them. If I had a ton of mushrooms, I didn't know what to do with them. I do Duxel, right? I mean, interesting because I, I knew you that. don't usually go the French route. Sarah just popped right up out of her chair. <laughs> Duxel, you want to tell Suzanne, people what that is? Yes, it's a mixture where you chop up the mushrooms, you saute a few shallots, and then you chop the mushrooms really fine, you know, like quarter inch dice, and then add them to the shallots and cook them till they're basically give off all their liquid. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you use them really as a stuffing, right? Yeah, stuffing, or you can put them with omelets or anything else. The other thing you do is grill them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if I would fire up the grill and you got a couple pounds of lobster mushrooms, I'd grill them. Yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. For grilling, once you grill the meat or fish, whatever you're, the protein, if you have enough charcoal on the grill or it's a gas grill, always use that residual heat to then grill vegetables. That's what I do onions, uh, peppers, anything else. You might as well, you know, get more out of the grill, and mushrooms would certainly be one of the things you could do on the grill. It also seems like since they're so large and since they're so firm, it really makes a lot of sense to do that. They'll stay together and won't... They're meaty. They're meaty. They won't fall through the Mm -hmm. cracks. Can can I ask a question? Is the taste fairly bland, or does it have a strong flavor? It's more on the bland side, just like a hint of seafood. I was wondering, too, what you guys thought about maybe shredding them, like with a bigger size shredder and doing some sort of, I don't know, can you, like, put them in, like, a soup somehow or? Well, you could certainly put them in a soup, like a mushroom soup, you know, a lobster mushroom barley soup or something like that. I've dried them and I've put them in eggs um, and then the risotto. I'm pretty much a three-trick pony right now. The other thing you could do is what they do in Italy. I was recently in northern Italy, and they fry mushrooms. They have porcini. Uh-huh. They have, you know, this is the uh-huh. time of year, or the fall is the time of year they have so many. They, you know, flour them and put them in hot oil. You could put them in a batter and, even. In a batter, and you can get rid of a lot of them that way. I mean, they really taste great. That would be a simple way to do it. The other thing you could do is just slice them up, saute them, and then freeze them after you've done that, and then just add them to soups and stews throughout the year. They freeze. I guess they would if you got after the liquid you cook them. Out, it's the, the problem out. with any vegetable right. is the amount of liquid. So right. once you cook them and get rid of the excess liquid, then they would freeze very nicely. Mm. And they like fat. I imagine most mushrooms do. So saute them in oil or butter till they're tender-ish, and then um, mm-hmm. you know freeze them in batches, and then you can use them that way. This time of year in the fall, how many pounds do you end up with? You can find like five to ten pounds pretty quickly. Yeah, I've had to, like, give them away because it's just more than I can deal with. I think grilling and and chopping to make Duxel or something you can freeze would be great once you cook them down. Yeah, or deep frying. Yeah. Battered. Yum. Thanks for calling. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Take care, Suzanne. Suzanne. Now it's time for some cooking inspiration from one of our listeners. Hi, this is David Harrison in Rochester, New York. I have a cooking tip. I use the tomato test to determine whether my knives are sharp enough. Some people try to use a serrated knife on a tomato, which is fine uh, and convenient. But uh, I like to use my other knives as a way of telling whether the knives are sharp enough for general use. If I can't cut a tomato 
with a regular non-serrated knife, I know it's time to sharpen the knife. Uh, so that's my tip. Thank you. Bye. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's mad French food scientist Alex Inews. Alex, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Super. Because I've been working a lot with a puff pastry recently. Oh, no. Really? I, I, I did that once, uh, and I vowed I'd never do it again. So Why would you not work with puff pastry? Puff pastry is amazing. It's, if any of the listeners are not familiar with it, it's that light and buttery laminated dough that we find in so many sweets, savory dishes like pies, turnovers. And it, and it just means that being a laminated dough, it's composed of, of layers, in this case, uh, alternating layers of, of both lean dough and layers of fat, in, in my case, just butter. Well, I have a theory about the French in puff pastry. Come on, shoot. The French invented puff pastry to show how superior they are to every other culture because it's almost oh, impossible wow. to make. It, it is very hard to do. <laughs> Come on. You're just doing it because you can, man. That's right. Uh, no, I, I don't think it's that complicated, to be honest. I, I think it's really time demanding. And the experiment I've been conducting very recently just proved my point. It takes a lot of time, but it's not that complicated. One of the key uh, specific of puff pastry is that it's crispy. It has to be crispy. Otherwise, it's just not puff pastry, and that right. makes sense. Um, so I thought, where does the crisp come from? It comes from the alternating layers and the stacking of them. But I thought, could we just increase the crispiness by increasing the number of layers? So that sounds like kind of a crazy idea, but you went ahead and tried that. And, and so how many layers did you end up with? Oh, hold on. Not so fast, man. We need to be in pace <laughs> with, with the soundtrack first. <laughs> okay. So I need to make you experience the sounds. I've got a few puff pastry with me here, okay. and I need us to be in pace. Okay. So this is a snappy sound because you need to know the, the differences. Snappy. This okay. is snappy. Yeah. Now, if you stack a few layers of snappiness, you get some crunchiness. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And then further down the line, if you want some puff pastry delicacy. Oh, deep. That's a deep one. Ah, that's a deep one. Exactly. So this is what I did. First of all, let, let me just do a quick, super quick wind back on how to make puff pastry. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like making a sandwich. You take two layers of lindo and then you squeeze a layer of butter in between. That's the starting point. And then you perform what is called a turn. You basically flatten that sandwich out and then you fold it on itself like a wallet. So at zero turn, obviously, you only have three layers. You've got dough, butter, and dough. It burns in the oven. It's not very interesting. At, <laughs> at one turn, you've got three times three layers, minus two, because some of them are fusing together. That's seven layers total. And when you bake that, it's kind of burnt as well, but it's snappy. Now, at two turns, things start to get interesting. You've got 19 layers, and you start to get a crispy feeling. Mm. Not exactly a puff pastry feeling, but more like a, a, a phyllo pastry feeling, if, if, you, if you know what I mm -hmm. mean. And starting from three turns all the way to six turns, you get the sound that you got initially. You got the 
the puff pastry feeling that that, that very delicate light and and, and sequenced crisp so three turns 55 layers four turns 163 layers five turns 487 layers and six turns 1459 layers which is at six turns the standards for french puff pastry so when you're talking about millefeuille a thousand layers that's not hyperbole you actually get over a thousand different layers right Exactly. Oh, thank you so much, Chris, for this segue. That's beautiful. I, I gave you the numbers just to show off. But from a mathematical point of view, it's exciting because this is not linear. This is exponential. Right. So I thought, what would it take to go to 10,000 layers, to, to do 100,000 layers, to a million layer puff pastry? Could, could I make like the ultimate crispy puff pastry at 1 million layers. So I did that. I, I, I just keep on folding, keep on turning. Just... <laughs> <laughs> it gets me exciting every time. So, so in other words, you obviously don't go out very much anymore. No, I don't go out anymore. <laughs> I, I gave up on this. You've now ventured into the dark hole of a scoffier here. Don't worry. I, I came back down to earth at the end of, of this experiment. It's, it's not disappointing, but I think it needs to be stated that that's... It's not worth it. Like, at six turns in, like the classic French puff pastry was really crispy. But at eight turns in, it started losing that crisp. At ten turns in, the dough is not even crispy, not even crunchy anymore. There's nothing. It's just like very lightly crumbly. And, and, and at twelve turns in, even more disappointing. It, it, it feels like a cake in the end. We, you, you don't feel any layers anymore. Is that because with, with a thinness at 12 or 10 turns, the butter and the dough sort of meld together? There really are yeah, no... Yeah, exactly. That, that's yeah. sad, but you, you, you got it exactly right. Because all these layers, they're just fused together. And, and I just made that super time-consuming cake that did not even taste that good, I would say. Well, the, the obvious conclusion which I hate to say it because it's in total support of French cuisine, which I like to make fun of occasionally, is that six turns is actually the ideal. So somebody had figured out that it's better than eight turns and ten turns. Somebody had done this 100 years ago and came up with yes. exactly the right number of turns, right? Yes, I agree with you. But at the same time, at three turns in, it's hard to tell the difference. I mean, that puff pastry at three turns in, so half the amount of time needed for the sixth one, it's just very enjoyable. Why would we go above maybe four turns in? I mean, I'm just talking about people who still make their puff pastry at home. I'm not sure this is like widely common. Do, do, you, do you make puff pastry at home? You said no, I think. No, I said I did it once and realized you did it once. that I just, yeah, the, the problem is the butter leaks out the side. Keeping it in exactly the right shape is kind of difficult. Mm. But, but I, mm. I would say to you, though, that in classic French cooking in a professional kitchen, which no one was making a puff pastry at home probably, uh, the question of time was not an issue. Mm. Perfection was the issue, not time. Understood. But these days with, 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 Today, with life... Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't call my life normal, but with a normal life, you, you, you would definitely consider like having yeah. less 
work to do with that puff pastry and still getting some very, very decent results because at three turns in, that puff pastry is so much better than any commercial puff pastry you, you can get your hands on. I swear, I swear. Alex, I knows the Scottier of the 21st century. Uh, I might <laughs> actually go try this now. Uh, at three oh, turns. yes. I, I'll do yes. it for you. I'll, you know. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Alex, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was YouTube host Alex Inews. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. Earlier in the show, Vicki Benison talked about her YouTube channel, Pasta Grannies. You know, I was recently in Bologna and cooked with half a dozen nonne, Italian grandmothers. They fried dough, they rolled out huge sheets of pasta by hand and made thousands of tortellini. In Savigno, just outside of Bologna, I spent a morning with a trio of nonne. It was suggested that I give one a kiss on the cheek, which I did. Then the second one wanted a kiss, and then the third one wanted two kisses. As they say, that's amore. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, watch the new season of our TV show, and order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, Recipes That Will Change the Way You Cook. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubop Crew. Additional music by George Brennell Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.